the old pilot's plane tails, leaving them behind. It was the 14th of October 1975 and a Vulcan V-bomber of 9 Squadron Royal Air Force was on its way from the chilly autumnal winds and rain of Lincolnshire in England to the warm and sunny little island of Malta in the Mediterranean Sea. On board were seven crew members, which is two more than the normal complement of two pilots in the cramped cockpit and the three rear crew members, the nav radar, nav plotter and air electronics officer in the lower rear compartment. They appear to have been accompanied by a couple of supernumerary crew members who would have been seated on rudimentary jump seats forward of the nav radar and electronic officers' positions. Suffice to say, the crew compartment, both forward and aft, were not spacious before the additional occupants were included. Flying with every seat filled must have made the aircraft uncomfortably cramped. However, they were headed towards the sunny Isle of Malta, and I have no doubt that all were looking forward to having a drink and eyeing up the pretty ladies who frequented the area known as the Gut. Officially called Straight Street, in Valletta, it was an alley full of bars, music halls, restaurants and dodgy hotels that combined a heady concoction of music, cold beer and hot women of dubious virtue. Regardless, I'm sure that everyone on board was looking forward to their arrival. As they flew down the west coast of Italy and out over the blue Mediterranean, the captain would undoubtedly have been gauging the ability of his co-pilot, who was not part of his normal crew. His regular co-pilot had asked to be replaced on this trip because his wife was about to give birth. The stand-in was offered the chance to land at their destination, RAF Luca a decision that would subsequently be described in the official report that followed as imprudent. RAF Luca was a wartime airfield built to accommodate the string bags, spitfires and hurricanes that would defend the brave Maltese people during the atrocious bombing onslaught that they received in the Second World War. Bravery so remarkable that King George presented the island as a whole with the George Cross to bear witness to the heroism and devotion of its people. The runways at Luca were limited by space, the island is small and overcrowded, and they were not designed for the generation of jet fighters and bombers that now use them. As a result, landings had to be flown accurately with touchdowns made on the numbers at the beginning of the runway or stopping might be a problem. The direction of the landing also made a difference as the Vulcan would be facing a downhill slope on the runway that would add to their stopping distance. Having said that, the airfield was regularly used by Phantoms, VC-10s, Nimrods and others. It just needed care and accuracy a little beyond the normal. It appears, however, that the captain didn't adequately brief his co-pilot on the problems 
of landing on short downhill runways which can present a variety of unusual visual cues to someone not familiar with the issues. He had also decided that they wouldn't use their large drag chute on landing, adding to the pressure on the other pilot to ensure that the landing was accurate. The captain monitored the approach, but it seemed that his co-pilot was having difficulties. First high, he used air brakes, but then was late in applying power to check the increasing rate of descent. Realising that they were coming down way too fast, the captain took control, applied full power and pitched the aircraft up, but only a second or two before impact, far too late to prevent the aircraft from landing heavily short of the runway. In the final moments of the approach, the left wing dropped as the Vulcan sank into the undershoot and the landing impact drove the main gear up into the wing before it detached and fell onto the runway. An aircraft spotter remembers that the Vulcan was lower than usual and he heard a deafening sound of metal scraping on concrete as the huge aircraft landed heavily, bounced, and then with wrecked undercarriage, came back down onto the runway. After scraping along the concrete for some distance, the Vulcan climbed away, and the tower controller advised the captain of the damage and that his aircraft was now on fire. He replied that he would attempt to belly land the aircraft, and requested that the runway be covered in foam. He was never going to get the chance, though the chance to land a second time. The fierce fire from the punctured wing was uncontrollable, and in addition, the damage prevented the crew from raising the gear. The captain managed to fly the crippled bomber around the circuit, but the fire took hold and was overwhelming the structure. Flaming debris was falling, and then... Control lost, the vast aircraft descended into the ground, breaking up as it did so. In the last moments, the two pilots ejected, leaving their stricken colleagues in the rear of the cabin to their fate. All five were killed when the aircraft impacted the ground. The burning aircraft fell on the town of Zabar, an event that is literally burned into the memories of those who lived there. On impact, the remaining fuel tanks burst, sending a wave of flame across the small town covering more than a hundred houses. Miraculously, only one life was lost, although twenty others received injuries, some serious. The Board of Inquiry was highly critical of the captain's actions, which were deemed negligent, despite the fact that he had dealt with another serious problem very well only a few years previously. In that case, an engine disintegration severely damaged his aircraft at low level. He climbed away on three engines, but the damage progressed to a second engine, and with his aircraft systems failing, he successfully ordered his rear crew to abandon the aircraft. Once everyone was clear, including his co-pilot, he finally ejected from the crippled bomber. The escape provision for the rear crew of the Vulcan, indeed most of the British V-bombers, had been a matter of contention for many years. 
The provision of ejector seats for the pilots was accepted, but the lack of adequate escape facilities for the rear crew had been heavily criticised. The original concept was that the whole forward part of the fuselage containing the crew compartment of the Vulcan would, in the event of an emergency, be jettisoned, allowing all the crew to descend together under a massive parachute, in a similar manner to the system developed for the American F-111 bomber. However, Avro had been unable to come up with a suitable design to accommodate this, so the requirement was quietly dropped. This short-sighted approach was very quickly demonstrated back in 1956, when a grand world tour of the RAF's first Vulcan, X-Ray Alpha 897, ended in disaster at Heathrow Airport in London. With the air officer commanding number one group in the co-pilot's seat, the Vulcan attempted to land in low cloud and fog, to be greeted by a large reception committee of press and dignitaries. One can only imagine the pressure on the captain to get this aircraft safely on the ground. Not equipped with an ILS, an instrument landing system, the crew were talked down using a ground-controlled approach, and when the controller advised them that they were going above the glide path, they overcorrected with disastrous results. Impacting in the undershoot, they destroyed their undercarriage and the Vulcan's control surfaces attached to the rear of the Delta wing. Unable to maintain control of the aircraft, the captain and the AOC ejected, leaving their rear crew behind to die in the subsequent crash. For reasons that defy logic, the air traffic controller who conducted the talkdown was blamed for the disaster, despite claims that AOC One Group was ordered three times to divert away from Heathrow because of the bad weather. The full result of the inquiry was classified secret, and even when revealed after 50 years, apparently failed to adequately apportion blame. When Martin of Martin Baker, the renowned ejector seat company, heard of the deaths in this crash, he reportedly became incandescent with anger. When the escape capsule idea for the Vulcan had been abandoned, he had lobbied hard to have ejector seats for all crew members fitted. He had gone as far as developing rearward-facing ejector seats for the Valiant, and initially the RAF were supportive of his work, even supplying him with the nose section of a Vulcan to assist him. He designed an ingenious command eject system that could sequence all three rear occupants through a single escape hatch without risk of collision. The design included self-tightening straps, self-folding tables and canted seats so that the escape trajectory would be safe. A successful demonstration was performed, but for reasons only known to the upper echelons of the RAF and the Air Ministry, his proposal was turned down, a decision that would condemn many aviators to their deaths, including pilots who remained with their doomed aircraft too long whilst trying to give time for their rear crewmen to escape.
The system that was considered suitable might well have been designed by Heath Robinson. Once ordered to abandon the aircraft, the rear crew would have to swivel their seats towards the access door in the floor. The door was blown open by 3,000 pounds per square inch of air in jacks and the access ladder attached to the door jettisoned so that it became a smooth slide. Cushions in the back of the crew's seats would inflate to push the occupant out and towards the door so that they could slide down in turn. Attempting this with the nose gear down was problematic as it was directly in the way of a safe escape, and crewmen were briefed to grab a door strut as they exited in an attempt to swing around it. Questions concerning the adequacy and inequality of the V-bombers' escape systems were even raised in Parliament when it was asked if it was morally right to continue to send up air crews in V-bombers, knowing full well that if the aircraft gets into difficulties at low level, the crew have next to no chance of bailing out. Does not the benefit of hindsight prove today how utterly wrong was the decision taken four years ago not to adapt the V-bombers with ejector seats? The answer was that apparently the most careful consideration and thought were given to the problem, but the final decision resulted in no action being taken. I believe that the reasons for this were a combination of cost and the time lost, both in withdrawing the aircraft from service and because of the work on adaption. The lords who discussed this went on to remark that between 1959 and 1964, a period not including the two tragic crashes I have mentioned, there were six accidents involving 24 personnel, 17 of whom were killed. Out of the 17, only two were pilots, and both it is believed, stayed with their aircraft in an attempt to save their crew. I personally have great pride in the Royal Air Force, but decisions that senior officers and those in government have made at times leave me completely at a loss. However, a lack of concern for a crew's well-being was not just limited to the Royal Air Force. Let me tell you about an aircraft that mainman Micah mentioned to me. The Douglas F-3D Sky Knight, later to be called the F-10 Sky Knight. Not an aircraft that I was familiar with. The Sky Knight was not intended to be a nimble dogfighter, but a carrier-borne missile-equipped night fighter, packing a powerful radar system with an extra crew member to operate it, a couple of cannons and the new Sparrow Mark I missile. It flew in both the Korean and Vietnam Wars, where it amassed a creditable number of night kills against MiG-15s, despite the limitations of those early missiles, whilst only losing a single Sky Knight. In the Vietnam War, it was modified to serve as an electronic warfare aircraft, 
where its large interior proved suitable for carrying the equipment required. The Sky Knight was a fairly large, straight, mid-wing design with side-by-side seating for the crew and powered by a pair of rather unimpressive Westinghouse J-34 turbojets. Because of its unflattering looks, blunt, tubby, and with a low-slung pair of intakes, it was nicknamed Willie the Whale, or more unflatteringly by the US Marines, the Drut, a name that becomes obvious when read backwards. What was different about the Sky Knight was its escape system, one that I have discovered was also used in the Douglas A3 Sky Warrior, an escape tunnel. Despite having been built and first flown in 1948, less than a year before the Martin Baker Mark I ejector seat was first tested, Douglas used the Ruby cockpit to design its unorthodox escape system. Part of the decision was made because early ejection seats weren't considered by Douglas to be suitable for side-by-side ejections, and the other was a result of an attempt to save weight. The escape tunnel led down and aft from the cockpit, behind the seats and exiting from a spot on the underside between the engines. In the event that the crew had to bail out, they would first depressurise the cockpit and then pivot their seats towards each other. Whilst the pilot tried to keep control of the aircraft, the other crew member would get out of his seat, face aft and kick open the escape chute door, which was supposed to fall down the chute and away. Then, grasping a horizontal bar, he would swing into the chute feet first and slide out of the belly of the aircraft, hopefully followed by the pilot. This was only really going to work if the aircraft was more or less straight and level, and not in some unusual attitude where gravity might not be cooperating. New arrivals to the Sky Knight would be required to practice this bailout drill on an aircraft jacked up for the purpose and slide down onto a pile of mattresses. If the first crew member didn't get clear quickly, he would provide additional cushioning for the pilot who would stomp on him as he followed him out. Some confidence in the system was obtained in part from a series of live extractions by parachutists during tests before the Sky Knight entered service at speeds between 139 and 444 miles an hour. For the highest speed tests, the F3D could reach 530 miles an hour, a crash test dummy was used and instructed not to open the parachute until between 5 and 20 seconds after leaving the aircraft for deceleration purposes. This escape system was also used to deliver special forces behind enemy lines, and pilots recall dropping them in clandestine night operations. One marine pilot remembers performing one such mission and tells the story of tapping his radar on the head, whereupon he left like a shot. He praised them for undertaking such a mission, and although two drops ended up with broken bones, that was from the night landing in the jungle, not the jump from the sky night. Despite the ingenuity of this type of escape system, In the end, the almost universal adoption of ejector seats in combat aircraft came, I'm sure, 
as a relief to everyone. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com. Plane Tales is also a standalone podcast, and I'd be very grateful if you get the chance uh, to leave us a review and perhaps let your friends know on social media. Many thanks. <laughs>